This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Lisa Fine, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Great Women in Compliance podcast. You are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report. Check out Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network, and it posts every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. You can also join in the conversation at the GWIC community on LinkedIn as well. In this episode, fan favorite and Morrison and Forrester partner, James Kukios, joins me to take a look at several issues which were discussed in the Morrison and Forrester International Anti-Corruption Newsletter from March. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I have back with me fellow University of Michigan grad, James Kukios, partner in Morrison and Forrester. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the firm's always great March International Anti-Corruption Newsletter. So, James, first of all, welcome back. Go Blue. So, James, you had uh, some, uh, in spite of the dearth of FCPA cases uh, and recognizing, of course, that the newsletter is more internationally focused, I thought you had some really interesting matters from the March one. So let me just jump right into it. We had a Scottish oil and gas company resolving Kazakhstan bribery allegations in the courts in Scotland. We rarely see Scotland prosecuting uh, bribery and corruption. So I was wondering if you had some thoughts on why is Scotland doing this prosecution as opposed to the serious fraud office or uh, a, a court in uh, another court in Great Britain? Yeah, good question, Tom. So just a little background. Yep. As you said, we saw the Scotland's uh, prosecutor service um, bring bring a case against a subsidiary of John Wood Group PLC. Um, and of course, John Wood Group has had after March and other times, has had other resolutions, including with the SFO. Um, but it seems to me that this one is because this particular subsidiary was actually based in Aberdeen. Um, and so, you know, maybe because of that in particular, this was a, a Scot- Scottish case instead of an SFO case. Um, you're right, though, it's not that common for the Scottish prosecutors to, to bring a case, but it's also not unheard of. Um, I went back to some of our older alerts and I saw, you know, in April of 2016, for example, the same prosecutorial service from Scotland announced that they had brought a, a UK bribery act um, case against a Glasgow based logistics company. And they had actually done uh, another um, resolution in September of 2015 another UK Bribery Act um, resolution um, that time as well. Uh, and so my guess is, uh, you know, these just happened to be um, companies that were uh, part of 
you know, based in, in uh, Scotland. And so the, whatever division of labor they have or, or, or agreements they have there, um, you know, Scotland went, went forward with those. And then when it seems like a couple months later, when the company was more based in, in, you know, other parts of, of the UK, the SFL went forward as well. But it's a, it is an interesting development. So James, we had a um, serious fraud office investigation end and it was into bribery allegations around KBR. Uh, the um, UK Serious Fraud Office lost an appeal to the UK Supreme Court around uh, document uh, production and subpoenas issued to KBR. But I was wondering if you saw really any greater significance into uh, the SFO ending its investigation or almost, I don't want to say routine, but you know they looked into it didn't find something there or didn't feel like they could prosecute it and close their books? The significance that I see for this is that um, back in August of 2020, the SFO had informed KBR that it had shut down part of its investigation, in particular the part involving unit oil. So that's actually two unit oil cases we talked about in a row because the Kazakhstan case we just talked about was also related to unit oil. But back in August of 2020, the SFO told KBR, you know, we're done with the unit oil part of the investigation, um, but we're still investigating some other things about you. And then just a couple months later, about six months later or so, in February of 2021, the UK Supreme Court held in KBR versus SFO that the SFO cannot use its statutory power uh, under um, the Criminal Justice Act require a non-UK company that does not have a registered office or carry out business in the UK to produce documents from abroad. And my inference, I don't know this for sure, but I, I find it very interesting that one month later, after the uh, Supreme Court of the UK says, you know, SFO, you can't use this tool to go get evidence against KBR for whatever KBR was still investigating, the SFO decides to shut down the investigation. Um, you know, when we had covered the, the Supreme Court decision before, we did note that it was likely to have an effect on SFO cases. Uh, obviously, now, you know, if the SFO is able to compel um, documents from overseas um, from, from companies, rather than going through the very complicated and time-consuming mutual legal assistance treaty request process, that would make case is more complicated. It's just harder to get evidence that way. Um, you don't have compulsory process in the same way that you would if there's a, a direct order, things like that. Now, the the SFO will most likely use MLAT requests in these cases because of this ruling, but it seems to me that it had a direct Im impact on the remaining part of the KBR case. And so they felt like, you know, without that evidence um, that they could no longer get because of this Supreme Court ruling, they had to close the case. So in short, Tom, to me, this signals that this Supreme Court ruling and the limits on the the SFO's ability to compel evidence from overseas, um, it is going to have an effect on SFO cases going forward. And companies and their defense counsel will very much want to monitor how the SFO reacts to this decision and whether it is going to complicate investigations for them. James, turning to uh, an older case that I think had a lot of significance at the time that it came out, the former uh, CFO of the New York-based, a New York-based hedge fund, um, 
which formerly was known as OCZIF, was ordered to pay a civil penalty. Uh, the OCZIF case, I think, uh, was also from the seminal year of, of 2016. And I wondered if we might use this um, right up in the March newsletter to maybe reflect upon the legacy or significance of OCZIF and, and kind of from where you sit as a former um, FCPA unit uh, member and now uh, as part of the Defense Bar, are, do you have any real thoughts on the significance of OXIF? Yeah, I, I have two thoughts on that, Tom. Thanks for asking about that. Uh, number one, you know, this was really um, one of the first, if not the first, of the big financial institution cases that DOJ and SEC made. Um, you know, I think for a long time, people did not see the financial services industry as being particularly high risk for FCPA. Um you know, I think most people thought of FCPA risk as extractive industries, government contracting, uh, defense contracting, and uh, maybe pharmaceutical and medical device. Um, and the enforcement agencies really you know, made a point of saying, you know, no industry is FCPA risk free as long as you do business internationally. There, you know, there's a potential risk. And this was really the kind of the first in the push of the financial services industry. It was also very large. Uh, I think at the time that it came out, um, it was the fourth largest um, FCPA resolution of all time. Now, with inflation, uh, I don't even know if it's the top 10. Um, you know, the FCPA penalty numbers are now, it used to be when we would get $100 million, that was a huge case. Now, $100 million is a small case, and a and billion dollars is a, is a big case. So, a $400,000 one didn't seem so big nowadays, but at the time it was big. So, you kind of had an industry that was, newly in the crosshairs of the enforcement agencies uh, and a, a record-setting um, penalty at that. And I think the second, the second part that's interesting is that they were also able to make, uh, at least the SEC was able to make cases against individuals as well. Um, you know, that's one, one thing that the enforcement agencies always say they want to do is not just bring corporate resolutions, but also bring uh, individual resolutions. Interestingly enough, uh, the reason we're talking about this now is that this is one of the um, individuals that SEC announced that they had charged back in 2016. Um, but at the time, for whatever reason, they hadn't decided on the amount. Um, the announcement was that he had agreed to resolve this, but that the amount would be determined later. And here we are um, five years later, almost five years later, um, uh, four and a half, I guess, um, with a with the penalty finally being assessed, and it was frankly pretty small. I mean, it was thirty five thousand um, dollars. So you know, I don't know why it took so long, but it ended up not being very high. But point being, they still did go after individuals and were able to resolve with them. So I think the new industry, uh, the the large amount, and being able to bring individual cases were, were a pretty big aspect of the OXIF. What What do you think, Tom? Andrew Sarinsky, I heard him talk in the um, uh, ACI's FCPA annual conference that year, and he, and he was going through his wrap-up, and he, and he spent some amount of time on OXIF because it really was significant. The $400 million did put it in the top 10. At that time, it, it no longer is in the top 10. But also, uh, certainly from his perspective, it showed um, – that both uh, the SEC and Department of Justice would go literally to the very top because the CEO had to pay a penalty uh, at that time. The uh, the other thing is the follow-on litigation 
that has come out of OXIF. There were identifiable parties who lost bids uh, to obtain mineral rights uh, and extractive mineral rights because of the bribery of OXIF, and they were able to, to, to prove that in court. And they were able to persuade the Department of Justice uh, to, uh, if not support, not oppose their claims. And so this was one of the first times we'd seen aggrieved third parties uh, being able to bring uh, claims, essentially tortious interference claims, against uh, a, a company who had settled an FCPA case. And that, that case was, uh, Ox, uh, that company was Oxif. So uh, really for those two points as well, uh, some unique uh, facts and legal situations that came out of this, but uh, your, your the starting point that you began with, James, that this was really the first of the um, investment bank cases where uh, many people, if they didn't think that uh, the FCP applied to them, there certainly were were not cases of any size brought before Oxif, and that I think woke up a lot of people. Uh, in the uh, hedge fund industry. And good point on the uh, victim issue. Um, that was a very unusual development. And now, you know, just recently, we, we see Ericsson um, resolving with a competitor uh, following an FCPA resolution. And you got to wonder, uh, is that another case, relatively rare, where they were able to show um, uh, a direct impact on a real victim? Because most of these cases, you know, when I was at DOJ, we took the position that they were victimless. Um, obviously, society was a victim, but you couldn't identify specific victims. And I believe, Tom, if I remember correctly, that was DOJ's initial position in the OXIF case. Um, but the judge made it clear that he did not agree with that. And uh, and then DOJ changed its position, as you mentioned, if I recall correctly. James, I've often wondered, uh, tortious interference is a well-known uh, state civil tort in the state of Texas. And uh, tortious interference with contract. And so I've often wondered why aggrieved parties to, you know, submitted a bid or, or had some sort of tangible evidence that they had lost out because of bribery or corruption really hadn't brought that type of litigation. But um, the, uh, however, uh, I guess I remember that the company was able to present information to the DOJ, which also helped, I think, uh, cause them to change their position. But nevertheless, however that happened, um, uh, we don't see it often, but uh, we now have a couple of examples of it in the Erickson cases as well put as well. We'll be right back with more James Kukios after this message. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Um, and we, I want to close, James, with uh, we had an unusual case uh, in many respects, a criminal prosecution in Italy. Uh, prosecutors brought a claim against the uh, former CEO and former CFO of ENI over uh, allegations of bribery <clears throat> um, that ENI and joint venture partner Shell had engaged in in Nigeria. And the facts of this case were a little different than we typically see, certainly in an FCPA case, 
because both Shell and ENI, and indeed the former CEO of ENI, had authorized payment to uh, the government of Nigeria for a block uh, grant of rights offshore Nigeria. It was clear to all parties, uh, prosecutors included, that this payment was made to the Nigerian government, but it was clear uh, to both ENI and Shell, because we have their internal correspondence, that this, this, they were both afraid this money would be used to pay bribes once it was paid to the Nigerian government. It was paid to the Nigerian government. It went to one former uh, oil minister, uh, Dan ATN, and Mr. ATN kept some of the money after he left government and distributed other parts of the monies to other Nigerian government officials. One of the things that the strongest tenets of the FCPA is uh, it is illegal to make a payment to a foreign government official, not a foreign government. And I've counseled many, many clients over the years that, um, it, you know, if you write your check out to the government of Nigeria, uh, that's going to be okay. If you write it out to uh, Mr. Oil Minister as agent for the government of Nigeria, that's a different story. So, um, but the prosecution uh, was not successful, um, but it did, I think, raise a lot of concerns in uh, certainly the extractive industry, who plays extensively in West Africa, but also, uh, I think, for compliance officers generally, because it's certainly one thing to uh, have a compliance program in place to prevent payments to an individual, but it, it's very different to have to get some sort of assurance from a foreign government that they won't use the money you pay them for mineral rights in any way they deem appropriate. And even if that happens to include they use that money to pay as bribes, it's a level that uh, we haven't had to do in the compliance world, and I'm not sure we we could do it. But I was wondering if if maybe you had some thoughts on that or kind of this case in general. No, you raised Really good points. I mean, as a as a baseline, you're right. Typically, money paid to a government is not an FCPA violation because the money has to be paid to a, a government official. Exactly what you said. And I think you know to to try to to implement some kind of almost third party due diligence of the government for all these things to make sure that the money is not being misspent probably is not practical and and probably would not be um, the best use of compliance um, resources in most cases. You do have the exception. Of course, we had the UN Oil for Food program, where the allegations there were that the uh, bribes and kickbacks were to the Iraqi government. Um, and DOJ brought wire fraud charges there instead of FCPA um, charges. Again, acknowledging that it could not be an FCPA violation technically, but, um, you know, there was a certain level of, of proof that they knew that this money was going to be used uh, improperly, it was being used improperly somehow. Maybe that's something, but still, I'm not sure that warrants additional resources unless you know that this is a risk of your industry or there's some reason to believe in a particular transaction that's the case. I do remember once when I was a FCPA prosecutor, um, it's a much smaller and different kind of, of issue, but we, we were investigating a company where the company had given um, multiple, I believe it was TV sets, um, to a, a, a small police department um, in, in, in a, obviously a non-U.S. Com- a country. 
And our question was, look, you know, why would the police department itself need that many television sets? Did you know that this was, did the company know that this month, um, these, these TV sets were not going to stay at the police department, but they're going to go home with the police officers. And did you do anything to make sure that the, that the, um, uh, television sets stayed there? You know, that again is kind of a, a very specific situation where the facts. It turns out that there, you know, we never brought that case, and, and it, it, I think we satisfied ourselves that it wasn't the case. I think there was some follow up by the company that the t- TV sets were there or something. Um, but you know, that might be a case where there's a specific reason to look into the transaction and to believe that the money was going from a government to, um, you know, as the government. The the thing go, of value going to the government was actually a cover for a bribe. Um, but I think Tom, you're right. In in the vast majority of circumstances, um, that is going to be too much to do in a, in, a, in a compliance program. What what do you think? Is there anything that companies can do? Uh, I, I really don't see it. I, I first of all, you you're actually right on the performing due diligence, but I I really am focused on the managing the relationship after the money's paid. And mm-hmm. I just kind of think of one practical way uh, to do that. Uh, I mean, even if that was a U.S. law telling a foreign government, no, you can't use the money um, in, the, in a way that will violate U.S. law, uh, <clears throat> that just, um, to me, goes against sovereignty in, in many, many different ways, shapes, and forms. So I just see a lot of impractic, impracticability. But this case, you know, once you have one case— it's, it's one lesson I've learned there. Somebody may follow that case and there may be a precedent created, even if uh, the prosecution in Italy was not successful and that others may try a similar legal argument in another venue that might be successful. Then you've got a successful precedent and things kind of yeah. roll on from yeah. there. So uh, something yeah. that we I want to keep watching. Yeah, it's a good point. And I'll just add so one James, more thing. Tommy, I was going to add one more thing, Tom, and, and it, it kind of goes with my television set. I, I have heard DOJ and SEC, when it comes to charitable giving to think, to institutions like hospitals, um, that they expect there to be some kind of follow through to make sure that the um, that the machine that was being donated or whatever it may be to the hospital was not being used in private practice. So there may be a little bit of about that already for some. Um, enforcement attorneys thinking that. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to a charitable giving, there probably are already safeguards built into many compliance programs to make sure that the that the money was being used appropriately because people don't want to give, you know, they want to make sure that the charitable giving is, is going to the right place. Um, so maybe that's, it's sort of analogous, but, but maybe um, different enough from what you're talking about that it's not a, a true expansion of any kind of um, compliance requirements. Really, and and I don't think it's an expansion because uh, typically, even if it's a hospital or other uh, uh, instrumentality, there's uh, it's not a foreign sovereign, and you can, uh, particularly with a hospital or other charitable entity, there are ways to manage that relationship after the money is paid. So I have a, a much right. greater comfort in those, and that's something that the DOJ has not only looked at but frankly opined upon in multiple opinion releases, uh, even when it was a, um, an instrumentality of a foreign government as well. Right. As opposed to money going into the, the, the treasury of a foreign country. It's a, it's a great point. 
Well, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of this episode, uh, but we're going to link to the March newsletter in the show notes. And I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks so much, Tom. Always a pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you're interested in history, specifically the Greek and Roman period, I hope you will check out the special podcast series. Richard Lummis and I are running on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. We're taking a look at Plutarch's lives and bringing it forward for leadership lessons for the 21st century. A fascinating series on one of the seminal biography and textbooks of history. If you're interested in history, biography, Greeks or Romans, I know you'll enjoy it. Please check it out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.